You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. So I want to talk about journeys um, over the next few weeks and journeying together. Um, And I think that journeys shape us in, in a variety of ways, and not just because of where we end up, although I don't want to discount that either. Sometimes it's good to have arrived somewhere, but because of the process itself. The journey, journeys that I've been on are uh, formational, um, and particularly formational when I experience something significant during the journey, um, something in common. Usually something bad happens and we're together and we experience it and that, and that connects us. Being the church is that common experience for many of us. Hopefully nothing bad happens, but even this meeting tonight is a common experience that we share. And the more that we do together, the closer we become. The more, uh, the more we move together, the closer we become. And the more those intense experiences are, the more significant that connection is. Um, something changes, for example, when, let's say you're uh, in a relationship with someone, let's say it's romantic, and then some trouble happens. Oftentimes you have a path to go forward on where you might be more bonded if you move together. And it doesn't have to be in the relationship. Like someone's parent dies, and you experience death together. Then you're, real, you're, you're moving in new territory, something different is happening. Um, You get closer even because of that. You have this common experience. Um, Parents of of children of similar ages experience this. Um, That's why it's so easy for me to make friends when I'm on uh, Adair's playground in Fishtown. When when, when I'm talking to other parents who are first time kindergarten style people, we have a lot in common because there's so much that we can talk about um, and we all have the same experiences. We're all complaining about the 20 minute lunch, which seems too short for our children who don't even really know how to eat, to eat, you know? So that's a, that's, that's a thing that we bond on. Um, the common experience breaks down barriers, connects us to each other. And when we find out we have more in common, it connects us too. So when I travel around the country, which I used to do more, before I had the two and the five-year-olds, I, w- I would always pack uh, Philadelphia sports memorabilia because I wanted to hold out hope that I would find someone who was like part of our tribe. You know, that's how it felt. Like Nadia's wearing an Eagles jersey now and I feel like some camaraderie with us because hey, we're connected. Even here, you know, um, you have that connection. But if you're in Portland and you find someone of the Phillies cab, you feel like you're instant friends. I remember this, ex- I had this experience in San Francisco where I met a guy, um, like in the dump, I don't know why I was there, but in the, like, the dumpster area of the restaurant where they were, th- and he was throwing away trash. And I was like, hey, Phils, maybe that's, maybe I saw him from a distance and ran over to him like a, like a long lost brother. Um, that, that helps, you know. Um, and even, you know, if, if I'm like, if I'm in Portland wearing a Michael Vick jersey, for example, that's, that's odd by itself. I think it's weird to wear jerseys, for adult males to wear jerseys in general as a fashion choice. That's a whole group by itself. 
right? Guys who think it's okay to wear a jersey in public, right? That's a special group of people. But if they have the same colors and symbols as mine, I feel really connected to them. Um, and that common experience that we share bonds us. Not only do you wear jerseys, you wear them of my favorite team, right? There's that connection that, that means something. And you can extrapolate this further, of course, right? Do you ever talk to people who rock climb? Any rock climbers here? You ever talk to them? They're a real community. <laughs> are you a rock climber? Who are they? No? Yeah, there's a there's a community, you can tell. They are. Or CrossFit people. Did you ever meet them? That was a real whole thing with that. You know how you you know how you know someone's a CrossFit person? They tell you the first thing you hear, first thing you know about them is that, you know. I'm a CrossFit person. Or people that like Harry Potter, they were we're a group too. We have an idea. You know, like even even like Gryffindors are particularly a group, of which I am a member. So that's how that's how I know, right? People what's that? What'd you say? What'd she say? Did you say I was Oh yeah, well the sorting hat hovered over Slytherin for me. But I think they cast me in uh in Gryffindor, or people that like cast iron cookware. We're a group too. I'm just giving you my subreddits that I subscribe to. <laughs> That's, these, are, these, are my, these are the things that I'm into. Um, common experiences connect us, they bond us together. So, and, and there, are, there, are, there are fun ways that, that happens, but then there's also ways that are real, that are real um, difficult that that happens. And there's a necessity almost to that um, bonding. People who, uh, for example, survived uh, sexual assault are bonded together. They have a common experience. And they're more galvanized and more connected when they experience more shame and disbelief and invisibility, in my opinion, as they did this week when the Senate confirmed Brett Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court justice. There's a common experience that survivors and women share that I can't relate to exactly, but I can learn to understand it, even as I listen and try to, try to relate um, as I'm able try to give space, right? There's something important happening. Um, and you see this in other communities too. Um, with people who've experienced different forms of oppression. The, the, the and, and um, you know, I, there's something that I can't quite explain about meeting another, uh, f like first generation immigrants and I have a connection. It doesn't matter where you're from we're connected because our parents are from somewhere else. If I happen to meet an Egyptian first-generation first immigrant, there's a lot that we can connect on that goes without saying. There's so many things I don't have to explain because he knows how an Egyptian mother works, for example, right? There's so much, there's bonding that happens as a result of that. Um, and, it's, and, 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 and the people of color in general have a bond. Um, and it, it's not because there's meaning to our physiology necessarily. You know, our skin color doesn't have God-assigned meaning. But we've experienced something as a result of it, and that makes us into something now. Right? There's something that is significant about that experience. And I think all sorts of people um, have that experience. Um, so the re recap this basic idea. We have common experiences together, journeys together, and especially intense ones bond us together and almost make us into a new family, um, a new tribe. We have a proclivity, I think, as, as humans to try to be related. 
And, and common experiences are the, are the blood that makes our relationships thicker than water, as the saying goes. Um, you might feel more bonded to uh, um, some people around you in your community and otherwise more than you do your family of origin even. And that's, that's, that's okay. That's a normal thing to experience. Um, and I hope this basic framework teaches us to be, and I, what I want it to do is teach us to be empathetic with other people in other groups because of how they're formed. We have an idea that people are different and they connect to one another based on a common experience. We have our own and they have um, their own and, and we can be different, we can be distinct, and we can be um, united without being uniform. That's what we're working on together. Open your eyes so you can see how people are connected in different ways and maybe you can find a way to connect with them or at least learn to understand where they're coming from. That's the idea that I want us to work with. So where am I going with this? Well, I think this is how God, uh, God used this idea of a common experience to form, to form a whole group of people, a whole nation of people. In the Old Testament, we could, the, the, the people, the nation of Israel, and God used Israel to help announce God's reign to the whole world. We are singing that song, Who is Like You, right? There's something special about God picking them and them picking God um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a world that had options for them, other gods to choose. There's something intimate about that particularity. Um, and God, and we'll talk more about this next week, God uh, formed them out of freeing them from captivity and from slavery. Um, I want to start that story by telling you um, um, how Israel kind of came about with a guy named Abram. Um, and fair warning, there's going to be several passages uh, tonight, so we'll need a lot of readers. We're reading the Old Testament, which, is, which can be a little bit um, challenging to read. It's also fairly old, so there are moment, there's going to be moments tonight where you read something and it doesn't make sense to you. And the way you, like if, if someone wrote it in 2018, you'd think it was crazy. Um, so give it like, you know, give, give it some space, right? They were their own people too. And so that's what we're learning to do. Um, so it's going to be, there, but it's also a narrative. So there's a lot of text. So we'll need a lot of volunteers. Someone start with Genesis 12, 1 through 3 here. Um, and read that out loud, please. <laughs> the Lord says to Abraham, such a Leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name respected, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Those who curse you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. Abram's starting a new nation. Go and start this new household. Um, God is showing them something new. This is going to be a theme throughout the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament, rather. Finding a home, finding a place to call their own. Um, God promises a man named Abram, who becomes Abraham, a great nation, a great family. The Bible is all about family, tribe, connection. Um, and the story, the story in Genesis is about how that nation came to be. Uh, God promises a family. But for Abram and Sarai, it seems unlikely because they're older as it were, and they're frustrated with this impossibility of bearing a child, and, and, and um, with Sarai bearing a child. And so Abram bears a child with Hagar, Sarai's slave, and gives birth to Ishmael. 
Ishmael comes later. Um, let's read this account. These are uh, 10 verses here, or nine verses at the beginning of uh, Genesis 16. Can I, and we need supervision to read this. You were reading it from way back there, dude. You were the furthest guy away. You have supervision. Okay, you got a little bit closer. Go ahead, go ahead, come on. Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to have children. Since she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar, Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from giving birth, so go to my servant. Maybe she will provide me with children. Abram did just as Sarai said. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife, Sarai, took her Egyptian servant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when she realized that she was pregnant, she no longer respected her mistress. Sarai said to Abram, this harassment is your fault. I allowed you to embrace my servant, but when she realized she was pregnant, I lost her respect. Let the Lord decide who is right, you or me. Abram said to Sarai, since she's your servant, do whatever you wish to her. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she ran away from Sarai. The Lord's messenger found Hagar at a spring in the desert, the spring on the road to Shur, and said, Hagar, Sarai, Sarah, where did you come from, and where are you going? She said, from Sarai, my mistress, I'm running away. The Lord's messenger said to her, go back to your mistress. Put up with her harsh treatment of you. Okay, so that's a little rough, right? Hagar is Sarah's Egyptian slave, or Sarai's Egyptian slave. Slavery in the ancient Near East is distinct from racialized kind of American shadow slavery, and we should just know that, right? That, there's, that it's not exactly the same as we understand, um, but it's still slavery, and we can't romanticize it, right? There's still a power relationship, and even the disruption of that power relationship messes things up, right? When uh, Hagar becomes Abraham's wife, things start to shift, and there's reasons for that. But I don't want to romanticize it. Uh, Hagar's bearing Abram's child, and that allows Hagar to gain stature beyond her slave status. And this is a big honor, uh, respect, uh, shame culture. And so Hagar's getting more honored. And in her increase of honor, Sarai's feeling dishonored. So they lose respect. She loses respect for Sarai, and that makes Sarai angry. And so she treats Hagar harshly, is the word, and drives Hagar away. The, the Hebrew word for harshly is the same word used in Exodus to describe how Egypt treated the Israelites to whom they were uh, slaves, right? So it's, 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 a, it's a high word um, for uh, punishment, brutality, violence. So it's not to be understated. So we can speculate that Sarah, Sarai's treatment of Hagar was oppressive and brutal. And in my reading, her fleeing is justified. Back to the passage, the Lord's messenger, who is really the Lord, we don't have a big reason to, to distinguish the Lord and the Lord's messenger here, commands her to go back, go back to Sarai and withstand your harsh treatment. That's a hard place to end there in verse 9, so I want to elaborate a little bit upon that because it might, uh, it might tantalize you enough or frustrate you enough that you're wondering why would, why would God do this? Why would God send her back? 
One person argued that God wanted Hagar and her son to live. And the reality, unfortunately, was wandering in the desert when you're pregnant without food or water was a death sentence. And so um, it's a recipe for disaster. Go back to where you'll be fed. But God makes his own promise to Hagar and to her son Ishmael. Let's keep reading. Four more verses here. The Lord's messenger also said to her, I will give you many children, so many that they can't be counted. The Lord's messenger said to her, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You will name him Ishmael, because the Lord has heard about your harsh treatment. He will be a wild mule of a man. He will fight everyone, and they will fight him. He will live at odds with all of his relatives. Hagar named the Lord, who spoke to her. You are Eloi, because she said, and I still see after he saw me. So God sees Hagar's plight and promises Hagar something great, too. There's been a lot of speculation about what this nation that forms out of Hagar and Ishmael are. Some people think it's the nation of Muslims. Some people think it's Arabs in general. Um, but at any rate, in Genesis 16... I think you see the failure of God's people, Abraham and Sarah, to act justly. And Hagar is justified in her departure, and God knows it. She essentially disobeys her people and runs away, but she doesn't get punished for it. God empathizes and actually blesses her with something great. Hagar is the first person in the Bible to free herself of oppressive power structures and to liberate herself from her circumstance. That moment of running away means something. Even though she goes back, it's not a defeat. Um, she's, she's, she's also the only person in the Bible that um, is given the power to name God. Both are significant, and they teach us something about how God cares for and loves the oppressed. God is seeing her in her specific circumstance and caring about her. Right? That's the idea that we're working on. We're seeing one another, caring for one another. God makes a covenant with Abram, changes his name to Abraham, and promises to make a nation among him um, and give him a child through Sarai and what follows. Who is now Sarah? You can see this narrative with how Isaac is born in chapters 17 through 20, if you want to read that later. But trouble follows. Sarai, Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael are living together. And, and the tension increases. Well, this is the last section of the text that we'll read tonight. Someone out loud. This is, this is the longer one, too, but it'll get us through the rest of the story that we want to touch tonight. Who feels up for reading this? Sarah, <clears throat> Sarah saw Hagar's son laughing, the one Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, send this servant away with her son, the servant's son won't share the inheritance with my son, Isaac. This upset Abraham terribly because the boy was his son. God said to Abraham, don't be upset about the boy and your servant. Do everything Sarah tells you to do because your descendants will be traced through Isaac. But I will make of your servant's son a great nation too because he is also your descendant. Abraham got up early in the morning, took some bread and a flask of water and gave it to Hagar. He put the boy in her shoulder sling and sent her away. She left and wandered through the desert near Beersheba. Finally, the water in the flask ran out, and she put the boy down under one of the desert shrubs. She walked away from him about as far as a bow shop and sat down, telling herself, I 
can't bear to see the boy die. She sat at a distance, cried out in grief, and wept. God heard the boy's cries, and God's messenger called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, Hagar, what's wrong? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy's cries over there. Get up, pick up the boy, and take him by the hand, because I will make of him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well. She went over, filled the water flask, and gave the boy a drink. God remained with the boy. He grew up, lived in the desert, and became an expert archer. He lived in the Paran Desert, and his mother found him an Egyptian wife. After Isaac, thanks, Bethany. After Isaac, Sarah's son is born and stops nursing. Abraham throws a party for him, and then Sarah notices that Ishmael and Hagar and, and Isaac are laughing. They're having a good time, and she gets mad. She resents her, and she asks Abraham, go and send him away. Send them away. Why? This is an interesting moment as you, as you get to know what the patriarchy is like. And I don't, even though I kind of do, I don't directly mean that um, as a negative, right? These are called the kind of patriarchal narratives in the Bible. That's what we call Abraham's the, the main patriarch. And so they live in a patriarchy. Um, and in that patriarchy, the, the father's inheritance is given to, his, uh, given to his son. And she doesn't want that to happen. She wants Isaac to get the inheritance. And so there's a conflict that's happening there. And so you can see some hostility between two people and two women in particular because of the system that they live in. Um, her inheritance would, would be um, passed down to both of them ultimately, and she doesn't want it to be shared with Hagar and Ishmael. Does that make sense? So Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away to live a life of poverty and homelessness. That little bread and that flask of water isn't enough. And as they approach their own death, Hagar cries out, and so does the boy, and God hears them and provides for them. And more importantly, God provides them with autonomy. You have freedom. God remains with the family. The boy grows up. He develops skills. And they end up having a home and a whole household together in the start of a new great nation. In the end, God provided and showed God's love to Hagar and Ishmael. And, and they were reassured of God's love. And God stayed with them. God heard them. God was with them. It's a small part of the story. You know, she's, she's in 16 and then 21, and that's about it. It's not the main story even in Genesis. But it's been very important for followers throughout time, especially followers that don't find themselves in the dominant narrative even of the Bible or even of the world, specifically uh, black followers of Jesus and even more specifically black women. Dolores Williams is a womanist theologian, so she specializes in black feminism. And in her book, um, Sisters in the Wilderness, she looks at other what we call a contextual theologians that specialize in, in reading the Bible from a certain perspective, seeing God from a certain perspective. And she can relate a little bit to the black liberationists because she's black. And she can also relate to the, the feminist scholars because she's a, a woman too. But she decides we need another way, another narrative, specifically for the unique experience of black women and black American women um, as they read the Bible. 
So she, she wrote about, writes about Hagar that Hagar has spoken to generation after generation of black women because her story has been validated as true by, by, by suffering black people. She and Ishmael together as a family model many black American families in which a lone mother, um, woman slash mother struggles to hold the family together in spite of the poverty to which the ruling class economics consign it. Hagar, like many black women, goes into the wide world to make a living for herself and her child with only God by her side. So you see, if you're, a, if you're reading this and you have a little connection with Hagar, it means something to you. There's something unique about that. And not all of us have that experience, but I hope we can begin to develop it. The journey, to get us back to where I started, the journey that Hagar and Ishmael went on and who they became created a nation. And their suffering, their eviction, their wandering in the wilderness created a common experience. And it's one that people that have read the Bible and followed Jesus can point to and say, no, she's like me. There's a connection that we share. The journey uniquely bonds people together and unites them. You can look over and say, no, you're like my brother or my sister. We have a common connection and I can see it. I can see you across the street. I know you've experienced something like I have. Just like we started with, right? There's these common ways that we're bonded, some of which are more superficial than others, but there's ways that we can be bonded and feel known together. And the, and I want, I, the, the Bible is full of those, and the story of God is full of those for people to tap into, to feel connected, to feel known. Um, and it's part of our story, too. With, it's, it's within our Bible, and it's also within the parameters of our body. Uh, as the body of Christ, we can include Hagar and her experience and all of the people that relate to it. There's room for us in that story too. It's a story within this bigger story. And so, so if you're suffering and, and, and you feel alone or isolated or unknown, like no one understands you, Hagar did too. And God saw her. And people like Dolores Williams did too, and God saw them. We're trying to create a community where we can include people that are on uh, different parts of their journey, different parts of their unique journey, who are moved by the Spirit to follow Jesus together. So we can be a diverse community that meets people where they are, empathizes with their experience without developing hostility toward it. Because you can become real rigid about who you relate to and who you don't relate to. Sometimes as a, as a way to protect yourself. And sometimes for, uh, I think, other reasons. And we can do that. We can empathize. We can love each other. We can connect, respect each other's differences, and still be united. Um, because God is making room for all sorts of people in God's body. This pluralistic community, you might say, that we have is united in its conviction to follow Jesus, to move with Jesus, but it does so in many unique ways. And so I want us to hold space for people who have unique journeys and experiences from us. And I don't mean from us, like we're all on the same boat. I mean for you and who you are too. Um, empathize with where they are and who they are as we move toward a common mission and even identity in Jesus. But then hold space for yourself too. If you feel like you're, that, you're, you're anonymous or you don't have a specific story to relate to, See what God might be telling you. Who are you going to be now? How are you going to work this out? 
Where is God leading you? See how you fit in here. God is leading us there. But God doesn't melt us all together into one thing. Even in, our, even in a, a main source of our revelation, the Bible, Hagar's story is intact. It's still there. Um, and it takes a lot of faith and courage to be able to stay united without being uniform. We're moving on a common mission, and we can do that even as a diverse body with diverse people. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to be uh, on that journey with you um, and to see you for where you are and for you to see me, too, for where I am. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.